Let's pray. What a joy, Lord. The truth that you are faithful forever, perfect in love, and that you are sovereign over us. And Lord, we come before you this morning as creatures. We confess that we are so unlike you. And we confess that we often turn our image of you into an image that looks far too much like ourselves. And so we pray this morning that by your grace, you would help us uh, to scrutinize our theology, to think through how we think of you. Above all things, Lord, we pray that our vision of you would be exalted this morning as we behold you. We pray, Father, that our love to you would grow that our appreciation for Christ would increase, and that our humility as well would grow. Lord, we we want to know you, and we pray, help us to do that this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. The Bible describes the Christian life as a sort of pilgrimage. It's a journey that has a definite starting point and a definite end. And so we we rightly say with John Bunyan's Christian from the Pilgrim's Progress that we are, as Christians, we are pilgrims and we are on our way to the celestial city. Yet, between us and our destination is life. And life, life as a Christian, can be both joyful and wonderful, as well as disheartening and discouraging. As we journey our Christian lives, we can grow tired, weary, and we can often experience seasons of great discouragement. Why is that? Well, to put it simply, because life is demanding. Amen? We experience hard providences. We work with difficult people. We live with difficult people. We have aches and pains. Our cars break down. Our plumbing leaks. The bills stack up. The jobs don't come in. Relationships fail. Deadlines loom. We don't make the grade. And so on and so on. And on top of this, when we evaluate our spiritual progress, it can be woefully depressing. Our Christian growth is anything but fast. We grow slowly. We feel like, most often, not that we have a Christian walk, but that we have a a crawl. We're just barely trudging along. We sin against people, people we love, and the people that we love the most sin against us. We experience the painful consequences that come with that. We experience injustices. We're abused. We're ignored. 
We aren't listened to. We're ridiculed, mocked, treated with contempt. All of this can produce within a Christian remarkable despair and discouragement. So much so that we might be tempted to think God has left off his plan for us. Maybe God is involved in the lives of the person sitting next to me, but he seems to have forgotten me. Maybe he's lost control. He's moved on. He may hear the prayers of my brother or sister, but he doesn't seem to hear mine. Has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? Has God given up on me? Well, this is not unlike the mindset of the people of Judah during the Babylonian exile. These people had lost everything, and they were suffering immensely. And they had become, underneath this relentless suffering, they had begun to be hardened by it. And they became hopeless. God is not listening to us, they said. He does not care. He's abandoned us. And so they were disheartened, discouraged, dejected. And then comes Isaiah 40. God comes to this discouraged, despondent people, and he brings them sweet comfort. In verse 1, he says, well, he commissions prophets to go to this dejected people, and he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to her heart. Speak kindly to her. Speak to her heart, literally. Now how does the God of the universe bring comfort to the discouraged? Well, we saw a few weeks ago, in verses 2 to 8, he brings comfort by highlighting his promise to his people. That God's promise brings remarkable comfort to us when we are discouraged. But in verses 9 to 11, he calls this discouraged people to lift up their eyes and behold their God. There is nothing more rejuvenating, more life-giving, more exhilarating to the Christian than a clear vision of the one true God. And what we see in verses 9 to 11 is that the cure for Judah's despair was in fact a clear vision of God. And we will find that the same remedy for Judah is the remedy for you and I today. Isaiah particularly highlights three characteristics or three attributes of God in these verses. So would you stand with me as we read verses 9 to 11. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. 
Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. You may be seated. This is a wonderful passage. And so I hope that it's a blessing to you today to, to consider it in the context of Judah's suffering. But perhaps one of the first things to go when we enter into a season of trial is our trust in God's reliability. When life becomes hard, sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is to think that God has proven himself to be unfaithful to us. Or perhaps we may think that our sin has become so great, our offense against God is so egregious that there's no way that God could still be merciful and kind to me. There's no longer any hope. I've ruined it. And when we're in seasons of discouragement and darkness, we're not thinking clearly. And we can buy into this sort of deception. Well, as we've mentioned, this is not unlike the situation in Isaiah 40. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are essentially words of judgment against the rebellious house of Judah. They had sinned high-handedly against God. And their exile, which was inevitable, was founded on their deliberate rebellion against the God who had been so good to them. Because of their sin, Judah would be carried away into exile by by the Babylonians. And in Isaiah 40, the people had not yet been carried into exile. This is a prophetic text, so it's looking forward to a time where the people of Judah will actually be in exile. And Isaiah, prophesying over a hundred years before this happens, is comforting the people. Now, it's remarkable that in his wisdom... God can bring comfort to his people before they even enter the trial. He knows all things. But remember that these people, uh, in the context of Isaiah 40, it's going to come to them in a context where they had left, not left, they had been forcefully dejected or rejected from their homes. They lost their bank accounts, their inheritances. They had been divided from their families, some of them taken into the king's court. Some of them had to stay in Jerusalem. Some of them were carried into Babylon to do forced labor. Families, whole families of God's covenant people dispersed. If you can imagine what that might feel like, you can know something of the way that Judah was suffering. These people were in a bad way. But notice the language of Isaiah 40 in verse 9. We know that they were suffering largely because of their own sin. But in verse 9, Isaiah says this, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Now there are a few things that jump out from this passage. First, we see that God is calling Zion or Jerusalem, it's a 
two names, two, two names for the same place, to lift up her voice to the cities surrounding Jerusalem. Now, this is re- remarkable because Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then Judah is carried into exile. So Isaiah uh, is speaking of a time where Judah is going to be rebuilt. So that itself is hopeful to these people who have seen their city um, leveled and raised. God comes to them and he says there's going to come a day when Jerusalem will be called to go up and preach. And the people say, well, it's destroyed. Right? But God is going to be faithful. He's going to rebuild his city. So Zion is called to go up and to proclaim the good news. She is to say to her neighboring cities, Behold your God. Behold your God. Not, notice, behold God. Right? It's, it's behold your God. And look at verse 10. We see the same word, behold, as we see in verse 9. But this time the object is, behold the Lord God. Or more accurately, Yahweh. When we see all caps, God there. Behold Yahweh. Now, so what is remarkable here is that after all of her rebellion and sin, Judah is still called on to behold her God. God has not left off his people. And he, he states this explicitly by saying, they're your God. But he does it also by using his covenant name, Yahweh. This is a special name. A special name that's unique in the fact that it speaks to God's faithfulness. The name Yahweh is directly tied to God's covenant with his people. Now you remember in Exodus 3 where this name is revealed to Moses. And then later on in Exodus 6, God speaks deliberately of his name Yahweh and he ties it to his covenant with his people. And this is what he says in Exodus 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let my people go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. That is to say that God had not revealed all of the dynamics of what the name Yahweh meant prior to this redemptive episode with Moses and the people of Israel. And then notice, he says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians uh, are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you out from the bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then listen closely to this. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. 
And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So notice that God's, when we see God's name Yahweh, all caps L-O-R-D, or all caps G-O-D here, this is a covenant name. It's a special name that speaks of God's faithfulness to his word and to his people. It communicates God's nearness, his concern, and specifically, as we saw in Exodus 6, the revelation of his redemptive purposes and covenant. The force of the name is not simply that God is or that God is present, but that God will be faithfully God. God will be faithfully God for his people in history and in all that is to follow. God will be God with and for his people at all times and all places. The name Yahweh suggests a divine faithfulness to himself. Israel need not be concerned about divine arbitrariness or capriciousness. God can be counted on to be who God is. So God is conveying to his people just by saying, Behold the Lord God. You are still deeply cared for. You are still being upheld by the terms of the covenant laid down all the way back in Genesis 15. Now, the covenant of Genesis 15 is a very unique situation. Usually when we read that covenant between Abraham or Abram at that point and God, it's sort of baffling, right? Abraham, if you'll remember in Genesis 15, Abraham is, is called and God is going to make a covenant with this man. So in Hebrew, the word make a covenant literally reads cut a covenant. Why, you ask? Well, because of the nature of making a covenant. If you remember, Abram took a heifer and goat, and he did what? Cut it in two. And he set it aside, and then he fell asleep. Well, he fought off the, the, bird, the vultures to keep them from eating the, the sacrifice. But he fell asleep, and then all of a sudden, God comes to him. God had already given his promise and his oath to Abraham, but now this oath and promise is being ratified in a covenant, ceremony, ritual. And so what happens is, you remember the fire pot or the oven and the lamp go through the cut animals. Do you remember that? It's an odd scene, right? Well, it wouldn't have been odd in the ancient Near East. It's only odd because we're so far removed from it. What was happening in that ceremony, and this was common, is that when a man would make another covenant with a man, he would enact that covenant through ritual. He would cut the animals in half, and and as he did this, he is saying, if I default on my covenant, let this happen to me. Let me be cut in two. That is not a lamb that's being cut in two. That's me if I am unfaithful to my covenant. And God makes this kind of covenant with a man. (laughs) It is incredible. It's remarkable. It's a strange scene, but it conveys for us something of God's absolute 
um, faithfulness to the promises that he's made to his people. God's character is to be faithful. But God further convinces his people of his faithfulness by participating in a covenant ceremony with Abraham. Now we fast forward to Judah in exile. And what God has sworn way back when to Abraham, he's now proving himself to be faithful to and upholding. Despite Israel's or Judah's rampant sin, God comes and says, I will uphold my covenant with you. And as we progress from Isaiah to the New Testament, we find that God's character has not changed. God is still the same covenant-keeping God that He has always been. The very nature of God is to be faithful. In fact, His covenant faithfulness goes so far, not as to enact a ceremony, but to lay down His Son for His people. As Jason prayed, there is no more convincing way that God can demonstrate His love and covenant faithfulness to his people than he has already done in laying down his son, Jesus the Christ, for us. As Christians, we are united to Christ by faith, and we are inheritors of the promises of the covenant. God has committed himself to us. I'm going to say that again. God has committed himself to us. To you, discouraged Christian. He has yoked himself to you, as it were. Your lot is now his. Your suffering and struggle, struggling, is now his. He could have removed himself from Judah. But that is not our God. He will never fail us and he will never leave us, even when it looks and feels as if he might have done so. Through Christ, we Christians lay hold of Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. We lay hold of that through Christ. Through Christ, in our discouragement, we lay hold of the promise of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so Paul is saying there, as you're journeying between now and the end, he's praying, God, keep them without blame, keep them in soul and body, preserve them until... The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Faithful is he who calls you, says Paul. And he will bring it to pass. That's encouragement to discouraged Christians. We also, through Christ, lay hold of this promise in Philippians 1.6. I am confident, says Paul, of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will complete it the day of Christ. God will not begin a work and leave it off. (laughs) If you need to be convinced that that is the case, read your Old Testament. 
God does not abandon his people. Are you a discouraged Christian? Are you a suffering saint? Are you a burdened sinner? The remedy to your discouragement is to get your eyes off of your present circumstances onto the living God. Look to Him. Look to Him in His covenant faithfulness. If you are in Christ, God is your God. He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When the trial is the hardest, when the night is the darkest, when you feel you can't press on, God remains faithful. So we sing, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Oh, cling to that. It's a world of hope when life is hard. So we need to behold God's covenant faithfulness. But we also need, secondly, to behold God's sovereign power. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord God, Yahweh, will come with might, His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. One of the tragic experiences of the Babylonian exile was the cruelty with which the people of Judah were treated. When the people, when Judah, God's covenant people, left Jerusalem, they were forced out of their homes, they lost their money, their property, their families were separated, never to be rejoined often. They were shipped to Babylon where they faced terrible consequences for non-conformity to a pagan king who enacted pagan rituals and enforced pagan worship on God's covenant people. Just think the book of Daniel. This was a difficult circumstance. And if you want to see it even more in depth, read Psalm 137. It's an imprecatory psalm where the psalmist recounts some of the suffering that God's covenant people endured, particularly the suffering of unspeakable crimes committed against their infant children. God's people had suffered horrendously. Sure, Judah had sinned, but she had also been sinned against. Because of the wickedness of this nation of Babylon, uh, it becomes, in the, in the scriptures, a universal uh, statement of evil. Babylon was so wicked that it becomes a universal statement of evil. We see this in the New Testament. Peter calls uh, the, the wicked nation of Rome Babylon. He who is in Babylon greets you. In, in the book of Revelation, the realm of the Antichrist, or that, all that is opposed to God, is called Babylon. Ever fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. How she misled the nation. So Babylon was so wicked that it becomes this, this word for evil. And this is the wicked nation that God's covenant people entered into um, subjugation with. It was a terrible time. So 
the people of Judah were grossly mistreated, grossly sinned against. And it was during this time that the people actually learned how to lament. We read a section of Lamentations, but I want to read you another section from chapter 5. The closing chapter of Lamentations captures something of the misery with which the people of Judah were suffering. Lamentations chapter 5, Jeremiah the prophet prays, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out and there is no rest for us. Have you ever felt that way? Worn out and there is no rest for you? The people of Judah felt it especially powerfully. And then in verse 8, slaves roll over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword, the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as a hot oven because of the burning heat of famine. We don't have enough food. We don't have enough clothing. We're forced to do um, slave labor. The sun bakes us. Verse 11, they ravished the women in Zion and Jerusalem, the virgins in the city of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill. And even the youths stumbled under the loads of wood. The elders are gone from the gate. Young men are gone from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. This was a tragic moment in the life of God's people. A tragic moment because their sin had brought them to this this point, but they had suffered immensely from the hand of the wicked Babylonians. And it's to this situation that Isaiah 40 verse 10 speaks. It says, God will come with might into the situation of oppression and despair. Behold, the Lord God will come with might. What does someone who is subjugated need? A savior, a redeemer, someone to come and lift the load, break the yoke from their neck. And God comes in strength. His arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Notice a few things here. First, the repetition of behold. From verse 9 to verse 10. Behold your God. Verse 10, behold Yahweh. Behold is a common Interjection in Hebrew, it's used throughout the Old Testament to point something out. To shift one's perception or focus onto something else. In this case, behold, calls attention to the person 
of God. One of the things that we've found um, in parenting is that we can, our children are so much like us. And, you know, once you're sort of on a roll of, of, of wrong thinking, it just sort of snowballs, right? And you need someone to snap you out of it, right? You need to just stop and, and, and think, remember. You need, a, you need to just, sometimes we just have to step in and say, okay, you stop right now. You're going to get yourself in more trouble if you don't stop and just think about what you're doing, right? Well, this is sort of like that, right? God's coming. Behold him, right? You're discouraged. You're down. It's hard. Lift your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances and look to God. It, in particular here, in your discouragement and oppression, look to the might of God. Look to his sovereign arm. This is kingly language. His arm ruling for him describes remarkable, immense power. When the phrase arm of the Lord is used, we saw it in Exodus 3, it's always synonymous with the power of God. His power is limitless and can never be thwarted. He is all powerful. He does whatever he wills and none can stay his hand. So notice that. Second, notice while Judah was being called to behold the power of God, there's another element here that Judah needed to see. And that is God's sovereignty. God is going to come to Judah as a sovereign, powerful king. The sovereignty of God became especially evident during the exile. Especially the prophets. They, they just demonstrate for us that God is not only sovereign, but he's meticulously sovereign. When you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you see that God's sovereignty extends over nations and over kings. And there's, we really, in the, in the prophets, we have a sort of case study of Proverbs 21.1, where The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. We see that play out in the exile. In Isaiah 10, we're told that God uses or used Assyria as an axe or a saw in his hand. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar confesses that God is the one who gives, who rules the hosts of heaven. And he gives to the kingdoms of man. Um, he sets over the kingdoms of man whomever he wills. And in Jeremiah 51, we're told that God, in his sovereign power, uses the nations as a war club to accomplish his purposes. What power is that? Nations and rulers and people wielded as an instrument in the hands of our God. Isaiah 5 says that God whistles to Syria, or to Cyrus. God whistles to Cyrus, specifically it says, to a nation, and it comes to do his bidding, like an obedient puppy. This is the sovereign God. 
Isaiah 45, we see that Cyrus, years before he even came upon the historic scene, is called by name by our sovereign God. He is in charge. He is working out at all times his perfect plan. And he has an all-seeing eye. Notice the next part of verse 10. His reward will be with him and his recompense before him. His reward will be with him and his recompense before him. Now there, there is a question as to what this means. The sovereign God is coming and he will bring his reward with him and his recompense will be before him. Some people argue that the reward that God brings is his people. He, he saved them, he redeemed them, and now he's bringing them with him. And that leads them uh, to interpret verse 11 as God bringing his people before him. It might be the case. Other people argue that the reward and recompense that comes with the sovereign, powerful God is the reward and recompense that God will dole out on the world for its works. So it's either God's reward is his people, or God's reward and recompense is the reward and punishment or recompense that he brings upon the world for its works. So the words reward and recompense have to do with wages for labor. It's what you've earned, what you've accrued. Both terms are sometimes used positively, as in, here's your reward for your good work. But they're also used negatively, as here's the punishment for your crimes. I think Isaiah's usage here is not referring to God's personal reward of his people. I think that God, given the larger context of his suffering people, is talking about vindication. I think he's saying to a suffering people, God will come, I will come, and I will settle accounts. I will make what is wrong right. Remember, he's coming to them with good news. He's coming to them with good news. Good news that is to lift them up out of their despair. And I think the reward has to be the, the vindication of his people. That is to say, the sovereign, powerful king will bring with him the vindication of his people. He will, he will vindicate his people. The sufferings, the wrongs that have been carried out against Judah will be judged. Their righteousness will be rewarded? Absolutely. But the injustices that they have experienced at the hand of oppressors, will be dealt with. There's something about experiencing injustice. The pain of it is that you just, you just seem like, it seems like this will never be made right. It's me versus them. There's no way for me to settle this. This is out of my hands. You feel helpless. You feel like there's no way to fix it. How do you relieve yourself when you're, you're being deprived of food, of clothing, you're being subjugated 
to do hard labor, how do you rise up in strength to throw off your oppressor? You can't. And that's part of the injustice. How do you, how do you save your family when you have no strength to even lift your hand? How do you defend your family from experiencing all these crimes from an, an evil nation? You can't. You have to resign yourself to a sovereign, powerful God. Now, part of the reason I think this is vindication is because our Lord picks up on the same language in the book of Revelation when he, the sovereign king, says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You remember the, the believers in the book of Revelation were suffering immensely. And part of the relief that Christ offers is, I am coming. And when I come, I will vindicate my people. So Christian, have you been sinned against? Uh, have you experienced suffering? Are you living under the weight of current injustices you feel helpless against? Are you maligned? Are you, have you been misunderstood? Have you been done wrong in a business deal? Are you tempted to despair of relief? Are you tempted to take matters into your own hands and exact vengeance? Listen, God tells you to lift up your eyes from your circumstance and look to Him. See His glory. See Him, the sovereign King who will come and, and settle all accounts. That is why we are commanded not to seek vengeance, but to leave room for God's vindication. God is the one who will make things right. In, in, in the Old Testament and even in the New, we see this theme of God's vengeance repeatedly. Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and retribution, says the Lord. Psalm 94, 1-7. O Lord, God of vengeance. God of vengeance. Shine forth. And then in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, I'm going to read you these verses. Verse 5. Paul writes, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Where he's writing to a church, Christians. That you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted. And to, uh, to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Paul comforts suffering Christians with the promise of coming vindication. The Lord Jesus will come. Our Lord Jesus will come. And he will make things right. And we know God is not only sovereign, but he's wise. He's working out your suffering and your experience of injustice for your good. God is so wise that he sanctifies our troubles. 
He's so sovereign that he has the ability to do that. And he's so powerful that no one can stop him from doing you good. Romans 8. So we behold God's covenant faithfulness. We, we behold his sovereign power. And then third, we behold his tender care. In verse 10, the arm of God is praised for its incomparable strength. But in verse 11, the arm of God is praised for its tender care. The infinite power of God does not nullify his capacity for tender care. It's not a seesaw with him. He can do it all. He is both sovereign and incomparably powerful and tender and compassionate and understanding. And he bears with us in our weaknesses. The very picture here is of infinite care at a slow pace. Do you move slow as a Christian? I move slow as a Christian. Well, even the slowest, most vulnerable sheep will not be left behind by our tender, loving God. Notice verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. This is a reference to the general care of God. It's one thing to say God is sovereign. It's another thing to say God is both sovereign and caring. Is a shepherd not concerned for his sheep? Sure he is. That's why David would fight a bear and a lion. Right? You don't go after a lion with your bare hands um, unless there's something that you really love that's being threatened by the lion or the bear. Right? 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 37. David was motivated to guard his sheep because he loved them. He cared for them. Jesus' description of a true shepherd is, is uh, illuminating here. He says this, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, he doesn't have any skin in the game. Right? He, he's not concerned. The hired hand, who's not the shepherd, he sees the wolf coming. Like David, he sees the lion and the bear. He sees the, them coming and he thinks, I'm not messing with that. I'm out of here. And he leaves the sheep and flees. And then the wolf snatches up the sheep and scatters them. He flees, Jesus says, because he's a hired hand and is not concerned. He has no care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. God cares. God cares. He cares, and, and, and he can communicates his care by using some of the most tender analogies. He compares himself to a nursing mother. And he actually says on one occasion, um, will a nursing mother forget her child? 
Maybe. But I will never forget my child. Isaiah 49. Notice the next line. In his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. The same arm of power is this arm of sweet compassion that brings the weary saint to the chest of God. The bosom is a place of protection. It's a place of shelter and love. It's where a mother would bring her child. And it's where the shepherd would carry the weakest, most vulnerable sheep. This is a picture of individualized care. God is not generally sovereign, and he's not generally caring. He cares for the flock generally, but he also cares for the weakest among us. Which is why we can know our love for Christ by how well we love the weakest member of this flock. It's a reflection of our love. God comes to the weakest member of the flock and he shows compassion and care. And he meets their specific needs. Notice the next line. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. That is, he will gently lead those sheep who have babies around them. He's not going to leave them behind. They are the most vulnerable. They would be the ones trailing up you know, the, the, the very end and they would be the ones most uh, likely to be picked off by wolves. Do you ever watch the Discovery Channel? Right? Notice this. Or let me read this to you. This is from Genesis 33. When, when Jacob has his interaction with Esau, remember Jacob goes to meet Esau. He's worried to death because his eyes are not on the sovereign, powerful God, the tender, loving God. Um, his eyes are on himself. And he has made a mess of his life, you'll remember. Uh, But God is remarkably patient with Jacob. And he gets ready to go meet his brother Esau. And and he meets him and Esau welcomes him. And then Esau says to Jacob, let us take our journey and go and I will go before you. Let's go together. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. And that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day. All the flock will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace of the cattle that are before me and according to the pace of the children. Even Jacob wasn't going to drive the weakest too hard. And God will not do that either. Calvin said this, speaking of this verse, these words describe God's wonderful condescension. For not only is he actuated by a general feeling of regard to his whole flock, but in proportion to the weakness of any one sheep, he shows his carefulness in watching, his gentleness in handling, and his patience in leading it. Here he leaves out nothing that belongs to the office of a good shepherd, for the shepherd ought to observe every sheep so as to treat it according to its capacity. And especially they ought to be supported if they are exceedingly weak. In a word, God will be mild, kind, gentle, and compassionate so that he will not drive the weak harder than they are able to bear. Friends, that is the God that needs to be beheld. When you feel at your weakest, when you feel 
The, the caravan is going ahead of me, and I cannot keep up. Everyone around me is holier than me. What am I doing here? I'm, I'm out of my depth kind of thing. Friend, God does not leave the weakest sheep behind. He comes to them, and he gently cares for them. The Lord is both mighty and meek. He's terrible in his power, but he's tender in his care. He's powerful, and he's compassionate. He does not break the bruised reed. He does not throw out the faintly burning candle. He does not toss out the people who failed so, so mightily as Judah and Israel and us. He never tosses them out and starts over. He does not leave the weak to go be with the strong. In fact, God's power and love are especially manifested in the weakest sheep. How do you know that a shepherd is tender and caring and powerful? Well, you know it when he goes to the weakest sheep. And he's able to lift it up. And he's able to fight off the lion and the bear. All the while, holding the little weak sheep that just can't walk anymore. Right? You know that's power. And you know that is a sovereign, mighty God. When he can hold the weakest in his arms and, and stave off the entire army. Right? That is a sovereign and good God. And a tender God. And that is what we see in our God. He delights to uphold his flock. And he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob. You, have, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. That is what our God does. When we feel he's gone, he's right there. And we are supported underneath the everlasting arms. This brings new light to Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. We, we are weak people. And on some occasions, we feel our weakness more than others. And it's at those times when we feel like we are just crawling that we need most desperately to lift our eyes up off of ourself, off of our own slow progress, onto the living God. God's gentle care of his people is unmatched. No shepherd, no worldly example can, can appropriately highlight God's compassion. But nowhere is God's compassion and care more evident than in the compassion that was demonstrated for us in his son. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And while we were his enemies, what did he do? 
He came and he died for us. Romans 5.8. And Christ holds his hands out to all sinners and says, Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He's the sovereign king, but he's gentle and humble in heart. And he also says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own. If you are in Christ, you are not outside of the tender, loving care of Christ. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows you. And the good shepherd never leaves the work that he has begun. Now, all of this is in an eschatological end times framework. Right? Isaiah 40 is a passage that looks off into the future. It looks to a day where God comes. Now, we can behold God now in the sense that we've been talking about, but the day will come when we will behold God's glory in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign king, with our physical eyes. Right, right now, we look to him who is invisible. But the day will come when Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 40 will be fulfilled. And we will see him as we are. We will see the sovereign, powerful king with our physical eyes. We will see his covenant faithfulness come to fruition in its final culmination. And we will experience the tender care of our Savior King. And He will wipe away our tears and He will amend every wrong and our heads will be lifted up from that point forevermore. So, discouraged Christian, look to God and find the comfort, the consolation, the strength that you need to live faithfully on this pilgrimage. It's a light momentary thing. Our pilgrimage will not be long. The end is coming. So let's persevere and be faithful as we behold the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. We thank you for your sovereign power. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness. And we also thank you, Lord, for your tender care of us. You have been remarkably generous to us. And Lord, it's in Christ that we know all these things come to us. So help us lift our eyes up to you and find the strength, encouragement, endurance that we need to finish our race well for your name's sake. Amen.